Tell you what, having one of these in your hands kind of brings back a few memories. Uh, for all of you who have ever been involved in track or run a watch the track meet, you'll recognize that this is a, this is a pretty important part of a track meet. In fact, if you've been at a track meet or you run track, you know that oftentimes it all kind of ends up to that final race. Anybody know what that final race is in track meet? Track meet? What is it? Baylor's specialty, man, it's put us on the map. It is the 4x400. And really, at the 4x400, what you want to do is you want to get your best courses, your fastest guys that can run 400 meters, or gals, if it's a gals race, and you want to put them together, and you want to put them on a team. And what they're, they're going to do, they have to do two things that are critical for them to do well, if not to win. The first thing they have to do is that each and every runner has to run smart. They have to run, they have to pace themselves, and yet they have to run at a very strong and hard pace. They have to stay focused, they can't make mental errors, and they have got to stay engaged. In fact, what they say in track, you've got to leave it all out on the track. You have nothing left by the time you finish your 400 meters. And it's really, in less than, you know, in today's uh, world, like 52 seconds, 50 seconds, you start off fresh, and 52 seconds later, you come back and you are spent. You have nothing left. You can barely stand. Your body is tremoring because of the fatigue that had just been placed under. But there's, there's the running hard and there's the putting it all on the track. But let me tell you that it's something that is just as critical as you running hard and putting it all on the track. It is the exchange. You've got to run a great race, but you've got to make a great response. Great exchange. And you might be coming in and you have nothing left, but you have got to put that baton out where that next runner can get it in his hand and he's going to take off and do the exact same thing. You've seen it in track meets. But let me tell you, it has to happen in the local church. You have to have people who are going to pour out their life as Christ's life is being manifested in theirs, and they are going to run the race, and they're going to be involved in ministry. They are going to serve. They're going to be involved in worship. They're going to be involved in developing uh, different programs and people. But let me tell you something that is just as important. There has to be a great exchange. In fact, that exchange has to happen as, as many times as possible where the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is passed on to the next generation. Now, let me just tell you, I want you to know where the game plan is. The game plan for living well. And it's found in the book of 2 Timothy. And last week, last week, we actually, as we've been working our way through 2 Timothy, I invite you to turn there, we came to chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. It is a key section. In fact, it may be always seen as a turning point in the book. And this is why Paul is writing. He is writing for this particular reason, so that you and I will know how to run the race. Chapter 2, verse 1. And we will also make the great exchange. Chapter 2, verse 2. Let me just tell you something. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here? Honestly, why has God left you Christian on the earth? Couldn't, you just, couldn't we just be snatched up, taken to heaven, and praise him without any of the hindrances of our flesh and the times and the troubles and the temptations? I mean, it'd be awesome, unhindered praise for eternity. Being in the presence of the sweet Savior. 
But God has us down here for a reason. And in fact, you have to know this. Otherwise, you're just kind of like fumbling around in the dark. Like, what is going on? Let me just tell you, I can keep it real simple. You're here to praise God with your being, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your life. You're here to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has satisfied his wrath against sin in his Savior. It's God's love and his justice manifested in the God-man, Jesus Christ, that if you believe in him, you can be freed from your sins. The debt that sin has in your life has been paid for in Christ. His perfect, righteous life, his righteousness is actually placed in you, placed on your account And his Holy Spirit is given in your life. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And we are here to proclaim it. That is who we are. We are proclaimers of the truth about God. And let me give you one other reason why we're here. It has something to do with this. We are here to pass on the faith that has once for all been given to the saints. We are here to make the great exchange. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, let me tell you how to run the race. And let me just tell you, by means of review, he says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We are to be strong in him. And what Paul is doing, Paul is writing in prison. He's writing at the very end of his life. He is writing to his protege, Timothy. Paul had many men in his life where he sought to invest in, to help them develop, to understand the gospel, to help them develop as pastors or help them develop as missionaries or just even people that functioned in a local church, what it meant to love your wife, what it meant to serve, what it meant to walk in grace. That is what Paul is doing with Timothy. Paul is Timothy's mentor. He is passing on critical truth for life to not only Timothy, but because it has been inscripturated, God moved Paul through the working of his Holy Spirit. This is meant for all of us. This is how we are to live. The mentor's priority in life is to grow strong in the grace of Christ. Personally, we're growing strong, and that's what we want with the people in our life. We want them to grow strong. Now, if you're saying, well, you know, Grant, I, I'm, I don't even know what you're talking about, this mentoring or this whole idea of discipleship. Let me just give you a very simple definition. In fact, we, we covered it last week, but I'd like you to have it. Discipleship is this. It is merely an intentional relationship that helps a fellow believer in Christ integrate God's truth with their life. And if you are a parent, you are called to the role of discipleship. It is more than putting food on the table and giving them, your kids, a bed to sleep in. You want to be involved in their life, especially spiritually. You would like that to be transferred also to to people in your life. Perhaps there's a person in your church. Uh, Maybe you're in a fellowship family. Maybe you've got a Bible study in the community or at work. You want to help people integrate God's truth with their life. If that is ever to be a reality, you have to, 2 Timothy 2.1, you've got to be strong in God's grace. That word strong means to be actually strengthened within. And when he talks about grace, it talks about the resources that we have and the riches we have in Jesus Christ. You and I have to be divinely empowered by him. It's, that's, what, that's what God gives us. He gives us relationship with himself that gives us strength within. It's referred to as the grace of Christ Jesus. And if you're ever to mentor anyone or to be involved in ministry, we are to be empowered by the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is a bunch of rules that you just kind of follow, rituals, some hoops you jump through. Christianity is a relationship 
with the living God. And as we draw strength from Christ, as we commune with him, as we talk with him, as we pray, as we read his word, we draw strength. This is all the grace, the riches, and resources we have in him. That allows us, empowers us, emboldens us to involve ourselves in the lives of other people. But if 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 is not a reality, then discipleship, mentoring, even spiritual ministry will not be a reality. Because spiritual ministry requires spiritual people engaged with the living Jesus Christ. And so the mentor's priority is always to grow strong in the grace of Christ. And the mentor's purpose, the mentor's purpose is found in verse 2. This is the great exchange. He says, verse 2, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The mentor's purpose is to see people mature in the faith. A spiritual mentor, whether that be a parent or someone that, uh, like for one of your heart-to-heart relationships, a lady that's trying to help another lady develop, or one guy who's meeting with another guy, what they are after is to see them mature in the faith, to mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the purpose. And like we talked about last week, and this is just really all review, there is a passion. The passion of a mentor is this, to know that the legacy will continue. Let me take you back to the track meet. If you have the baton in your hand, someone got it to you. Maybe it was your grandparent. Maybe it was someone at work. Maybe it was a student, a fellow student. And they got this baton in your hand, and you started running with it, and you're moving. If you don't make the exchange, the race ends with you. Did you know that? It ends with you. You got it, and maybe you even ran pretty hard. Maybe you weren't like, look at all those people in the stands there. They're looking at me. You, maybe you kind of slowed it through, but if you don't make the exchange, the race ends with you. Let me tell you, the passion of a mentor is to know that this legacy will continue. It's what he gives his life to. He wants people to experience fullness in life with Christ. Where Christ is preeminent in their life, they are satisfied with him. That is his driving passion in his life And he wants to make sure that that legacy continues. That is why he involves himself, if he's a guy, with other guys, helping them grow in the faith, or that lady. And we, frankly, have lots of people, both men and women in our church, and this is their life. And you even know who I'm talking about. I don't even have to mention names. You see them involved in other people. Why? They don't have anything better to do? On the contrary, it is the best thing they can do. They understand that the Lord has left us here with a reason. For a reason. And so, this Sunday, what I wanted to do, I didn't want to go by this so you're like, well, that mentoring thing is nice, and I'll think about that, because frankly, it can't be a fringe part of our church. This is what Jesus Christ left us here to do. Do you remember what he said right before his ascension? He said, I want you to go, and does anybody happen to remember? These are kind of final words of Jesus. Any Christian out there happen to remember what he left us to do? What was that? I think I hear it. Think, I think someone said, go and six legs? What? Oh, go make disciples. Is that right? What in the world did that, what does that mean? Do you think when Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples that the, that the apostles, you know, that were hanging out with Jesus, like, oh, what, what, is that? what does that mean? What, what, wait, where are you going? You, you can't leave us now. You didn't tell us what to make disciples. Do you think that happened? Do you think they were clueless on what he meant? I, I think no way. I think they knew exactly what he meant. And that's what I wanted to do this Sunday. 
I wanted to talk about the mentor's pattern. How in the world does he go about it? And let me just tell you what it very simply is. It is to invest in others like Jesus. A mentor's pattern in his life is to invest in others like Jesus. Now, Jesus, I mean, being the son of God, obviously there's things and limitations to, to us being human, made in the image of God, but not being God that we're going to have. But there's things that we can learn from the life of Jesus about mentoring, about how you invest in others. I mean, Jesus took lost guys. They were just kind of lost out there, just kind of lost in their job. Maybe they were just kind of lost wandering around. And you know what he did? He took lost people and he turned them into learners. And he took those learners and he turned them into leaders. He chose them. Okay? There were lots of people. He chose 12. Okay? And he picked them and he called them by name. He says, I want you boys to be with me. And then he engaged them. He said, oh, listen, I want you to hang with me. I want you to be with me. And they watched Jesus. And then he actually said, guess what? Time for you boys to get involved. And then he helped them get involved in the process. Remember, there were some key turning times where like they said, oh, Jesus, you better give them something to eat. And he says, no, you give them something to eat. <gasps> what? We, no, we're, we're kind of your fan club. We don't do anything. No, no, game over. You're going to learn how I'm going to work for you. And he engaged them. He started teaching them and he helped them. And then you know what he did? He entrusted the ministry to them. When he said, go make disciples, it was like, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I have told you what to do. You know exactly what I mean. Now do it and pass this baton on. Now we see this all over the place. This idea of training people and developing and passing on. You see it, you see it in the trades. You have people in our church that are extremely skilled with their hands and very knowledgeable in, in trades. You see it in professions. You see it with architects. You see it with doctors. You see it in schools. You see it in athletics. You see it like in the military. You know, we can take, we can take a guy, a kid, who's never even shot a gun, and we can run him through something called boot camp, and we can totally restructure him. We can make him an expert marksman. Even though when he started off, he didn't even know how to shoot a gun. We can teach him how to function in a team, how important that is. We can teach him how to lead in the case he finds himself in a situation where he needs to step up to the leadership plate that he's not like scrambling like, oh, what do I do now? Or pulling out some sort of manual. I better read up here. He knows what to do because he's been trained. We see it everywhere. Let me just tell you one glaring exception where I think we're falling short. We oftentimes don't see this in the church. It's like, is the church all about just kind of, well, we just want to get people on Sunday. They come, they sit, and then they leave. Is that it? Is that what Jesus meant when he said, go make disciples? I have a feeling there was something a little bit more to it. That's what we want to talk about. When Jesus picked his men, Mark chapter 3, he said this in verse 14. It says of him that he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. He picked men to be with him. Now, when you uh, read the gospel accounts, you're going to find out that these men, there was nothing special about these guys. These weren't like the top scholars coming out of the rabbinical school. These weren't like the brightest minds. Like, these are our elite folks, you know. Actually, actually, what you're going to find is that they weren't involved in the Levitical priesthood. Uh, they didn't have what we, what we can tell, prominent places in the synagogue. They were common, laboring men. Perhaps some of them had some considerable means, like the sons of Zebedee, James and John. I mean, they had fishing business, and they had hired servants. They had boats. Uh, a guy like Peter was also a fisherman. Being Fish being a staple food, the primary meat in all of Israel, these guys probably made a pretty good living. They probably 
they, they understood money, they understood finances, but they were guys and just like you and I. They're just everyday, ordinary people. They were, I don't know if you're, when you read the Gospels, but it's kind of like it's either depressing or encouraging, but they are so much just like you and me. They, they're, they're prone to frailties, they have shortcomings, they have fears, they have frailties. They frankly sometimes don't get it. I mean, even Jesus, you can, you can see him somehow being, he's like frustrated. He looked at them like, what's going on? How do you not get this? And they just, they didn't get it. But you know what? I have confession. I, I don't get it sometimes. Or I go back to the same old patterns that, that the Lord just had rescued me for. What's that all about? Because, you know what? I'm just like these guys. They're just everyday, ordinary people. They were impulsive. They were temperamental. If you ever noticed, they were easily offended. They had prejudices. I mean, they, just, they were just everyday, normal people. And yet, in the hand of the Savior, as they began to experience what does it look like to walk with Jesus Christ, he took these men, and when he infused them with his life and trained them on how to walk, it was said of these men that they turned the world upside down. So what did Jesus do? How could he take these men, this group of just everyday, ordinary, average people, and allow them to face extraordinary circumstances, to do some sort of amazing work? How did, how did he do it? What was his strategy? Well, let me tell you what it simply is. His strategy was this, the intentional development of individuals. That was his plan. Now, Jesus declared the gospel and the truth, and he did so on a widespread basis. I mean, there were thousands that came to him. I mean, you have a feeding of 5,000 men, not counting women and children, 4,000. There were so many people that would crowd up to him sometimes that he would have to get in a boat on the lake to use that water as a surface for his voice to be able to be, uh, to be proclaiming the truth so it would be carried over so the masses could hear him. He did that. But the more you read the Gospels, you find that the primary investment that he made was what? With these 12 guys. That was his plan. So I'd like to tell you, for all of you who are parents involved and interested in being involved in your kids' spiritual lives, for all of you that are involved as a, as a leader in a ministry, whether in this church or in this community, for those of you who are a small group leader, a fellowship family leader, a youth leader, a college leader, a, a singles leader, uh, for those of you who are, who are involved in a mentoring relationship, heart to heart, or you've got another guy, you have some sort of relationship that's been established where you're helping another person develop, what are the traits that Jesus had so we can follow this pattern? What are they? What are these qualities? If I'm a grandparent, I'm like, I just want to be good to my grandkids, and I want to give them toys and candy. But you'd like to ramp it up a level where they actually remember the significance of what you're all about. And you're going to want to pay real close attention. What did Jesus do? Let me get, I'd like to just present this to you very simply. Let me give it to you. The first thing that Jesus did he gave his guys time. He spent time. In fact, he selected them. That was the essence of his training program. I'm going to get these guys, and I'm going to give them some time. You would expect that as Christ's ministry, and really Christ's ministry focused on about a three-year period, that he would just spend more and more time with the masses. I mean, Jesus was immensely popular. They at different times wanted to grab him and just make him king now. He's doing miracles. He could feed them. And Jesus, you know what, the more you look at what he did in his life, in the second and third year, he actually spent more time with just his men. Just the twelve. It's actually contrary to how you and I would think. We're like, you want to influence the masses, then what you need to do is you need to be in the masses. Get the stadiums filled. In reality, though, 
Jesus is going to focus on a core group of men. He's going to give them time. That was his deliberate strategy. And that's what he did. He, in fact, he spent more time with these 12 guys, which had to have been unpleasant at times, than he did with the, all the other people in the world all put together. They lived with him. They went with him. They, they camped out with him. When he had no place to lay his head, neither did they. They were hungry with him. They were thirsty. They were in the boat with him. They were with Jesus because Jesus gave them time. That was a key part of his strategy. That is one of his traits. And the reality is, friends, you and I want to be influential. We want to help people grow in the relationship with Christ. Guess what? We've got to give these people some time. It takes time to have influence. No time, no influence. Let me give you a second trait that we find in Jesus. Not only did he give them time, but he gave them teaching. Now, Jesus didn't set up a formal school, like the school of Jesus. And so you come to the school, and he gives lectures, and here are your handouts, and here's the syllabus, and there's a midterm, and it's going to be an oral exam, and it's going to be nasty. No, there was none of that. There was no final exam, no major research papers, like, boys, make sure your papers are in on time. None of that. You know, his, his school was life. That's how he functioned. He, his, in fact, his teaching methods were in stark contrast to what was popular among Judaism, among the Pharisees and the scribes that had a scholastic procedure and a right way of doing things. And Jesus' school was kind of like out here in the countryside or along the path or as they walked through the city. And what Jesus would do is he took aspects of everyday life and he taught his guys with these. So you see him talking about eating. Okay, could they relate to eating? Yes, every guy. Man, we live in this world. We're eating all the time. We can't have fun if we're not eating, right? You know, it's like, and so he would relate things about eating, or he would talk to them about planting seeds. Maybe they were watching some farmer, you know, and he just, he's planting seeds. He'd talk about that. He'd talk about um, paying taxes, birds in the air as they were flying by, wolves in the bushes, and he'd just like, hey, watch out and beware of these kind of guys, of these wolves. He would talk to a woman going to a well, and he would teach her about what it means to go to, to the living God for the wellspring of life. Remember in Luke 15, uh, the Pharisees and scribes were totally not getting what Jesus was doing because he was hanging out with the sinners, you know, and the outcasts of society. And so he taught, he said, hey guys, let me tell you a little story about this man who had a, a, a lost sheep. And could they understand about sheep? Yes, sheep were everywhere. They totally understood about sheep and shepherds. And then he told them, I know that you're not getting this, so maybe a 100 was too big. Let's start with 10. And remember they told about the lady who had the ten coins and she lost one, you know, and, and she starts sweeping around. She finds it and she throws a big party and spends the one coin, you know. I mean, remember that? Uh, what was he doing? He was all setting it up to tell them about the lost son so that they could see what he was doing. Jesus used the everyday. He also did a lot by asking questions. Jesus asked awesome questions like, what do you want me to do for you? Who do people say that I am? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He would ask these questions to help his guys learn and to be thinking with their heads. And then he would also respond to their questions and respond to people's questions. People would ask him questions. He would respond. All of this is part of teaching. Another thing that Jesus did is that he corrected his guys. If you're going to be involved in in mentoring, uh, there are going to be times where that guy or that gal is kind of going off in the wrong direction. You're going to have to step in. And Jesus did that with his men. So for, remember uh, Peter, man, he, in one of those 
famous Peter grandiose moments like, Jesus, sit down, I'll take care of it, and I'll take over from here. Remember that? Like he was like, no way, Jesus, no, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, remember Peter? Peter was rebuked by Jesus. You don't even know what you're talking about. And Jesus had to say, hey, listen, you're not getting this. That's, you're going in the wrong direction. Or here was a classic example. Remember, these, these people were coming, they were bringing their children so that Jesus would touch them. And, and the disciples were like, what, kids? No, man, this is, what do you think, this is a children's ministry? No, no, no. And, they're, and, they're, and they, the disciples were actually trying to get them. They actually, so the word in Mark is that they were rebuking these kids and the parents. I mean, can you imagine what that like? Get away, and they're kicking kids. Can you imagine these disciples, these fishermen? Kids, get out of the way. Get away from Jesus so he doesn't step on you. They were just trying to... And you know what Jesus had to do? In fact, it says of Jesus that he was indignant of, with these guys. And he said, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. And then you know what? He used this big teaching moment like, you're like, what? You want the kids? You want the kids to touch you? And then he said this, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And you've got to become like one of these kids, a simple childlike faith. This was just the nature of Jesus. He taught them. He was looking for opportunities. He was always investing in them. Another thing that Jesus did is that he pointed out events that usually others were missing. Remember one day they were at the temple and, and people were, were giving their offerings and, and the wealthy were, and they were giving a lot of money. And I'm sure the disciples were like kind of locked on, you know, with the guy with the fancy robes, you know. Maybe he had a cart. Maybe he brought his wheelbarrow with his money, you know. And he had reduced it all down to very small coins so he could make a big show out of the whole deal. And I'm sure they were locked on to that. And then Jesus, remember, he... He said, hey, look at that. Which guy? Where? Is someone coming in? He's got a camel load of money? Where is And they're looking. No. You see that widow? That, you mean that little old lady over there? Yeah. And, and she's only got a little bit of a coin, a couple of coins. He says, you know what? That lady right there, she just gave all that she had to live on. You know what worship looks like? It looks like her. Jesus was the master of pointing out events, especially those that people were missing. Another thing that Jesus did is he taught his people how to exercise discernment. Like he'd say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He taught them how to engage their mind and to think and to exercise discernment so they're not going to be misled by false teachers so that they would know what's truth. This is all what Jesus did. He gave his people time. He gave his people teaching. Let me give you a third. That is its close cousin to teaching. He gave them training. If teaching is explaining to them, to them what it is, uh, when you're actually training them, you are modeling it. You are showing. You're getting involved with their life. You are helping them do it. Now, we're all familiar with training. Let me give you an example. Got a couple boys, and we're kind of in the process of learning how to mow the lawn, okay? It's always a kind of a, kind of a step toward manhood when you can mow the lawn. Isn't that right? Some of you, not, if you've not reached that point, Come visit me and I'll help you out here. You mow my yard and you'll be a man. Okay. Anyway, uh, we just what we're doing is we, my, my son has watched me mow the yard probably hundreds of times. And so then, you know, we started talking about like, you know what? I think the day's coming where you could start mowing the lawn. And they're like, really? Yeah, you could, you know. And so, and then what we did is, you know, I'm, I'm right there with him and I'm helping him. And, you know, and then just... Pointing out, like, listen, when you mow on, you know, you want a straight line. Because at first I let him just kind of do it, and it was, like, it was all over the place. You know, I knew that was coming. Because, see, then he said, you see how it's all wavy there? 
what we want to do is have a nice straight line. So you've got to pick out a point, like on that fence there, and you just focus on the point and you go straight. And, and pretty soon, you know, you could do it, and of course it stalled one time, and then trying to start it and show them how to do that. And then when he's able to do it, every, you know, doing pretty good, then, you know, I actually kind of go fool with the swing set for a little bit. So I'm a little bit farther away from him, and then I just walk off sometime, and I'm just going to go to the front yard because I want him like, oh, Dad's trusting me with the lawnmower here. I, I do it. Oh, that's right, focus on the point. And he's, he's doing it. And you see what I'm doing is I'm, I'm training him how to mow the lawn. It's, these are just a simple process. Jesus did that with his men. Every mentor trains his people. You get them involved in the game. So in Luke 9, remember when we went through the Gospel of Luke? Luke 9 was this big pivot point. Before Luke 9, the disciples were just hanging out with Jesus. They were trying not to get in the way, and they would love to hang out with him because, they, I mean, Jesus was doing the miracles, and we're with Jesus, so we're pretty important too. You know, you know They were kind of in that group. But in Luke 9... So he gathered them together. Remember Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he said, all right, I'm sending you out. You're going to go preach the gospel. I'm going to empower you. But here you go. And he told them, I don't want you taking a lot of resources, no backpacks, no extra shoes, clothes. You're just going out. Whoa, we're going out. And he sent them out. And he empowered them. Why? Because Jesus was training his men. That's how you do it. And so, friends, that's what Jesus did. For instance, let me tell you about prayer. Remember, Jesus' pattern was to pray. In fact, Jesus is always praying. If you look at him in the Gospels, like, Jesus doesn't pray like you and I pray. See, he understands the beauty and the awesomeness of communion with God and dependence upon the Father. Hence, he could pray for a long period of time. He could pray all night. And his, his disciples, you know, not the sharpest tools in the shed, but they're watching and, like, you know, Jesus spends a lot of time praying. In the morning, you know, and we're waking up... He's been up for hours praying. What's... And then they ask him in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, which we are polite enough not to interrupt there, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Teach us how to do it. He modeled it and he taught them how to do it. He's training them. Let me give you another thing that Jesus modeled for his guys and he trained them in. And that was absolute obedience to the will of God. Time and time again, he says, I must do the will of the one who sent me. He was absolutely committed. It was not an option. Jesus wasn't doing his own program. He was completely focused on the will of the Father. He came here for a reason, for a purpose. He was going to be God's great atonement for sin, the propitiation and the satisfaction for all of God's wrath against sin, against humanity, is going to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. He came for that reason, and he also came to train his men so they would carry on the patterns of discipleship in their life, and they got it. His love, Jesus' love for his Father was the reason that he obeyed his will. If you're struggling with obeying the Lord, let me tell you where it begins. Not with legalism like, better get your act together and just follow these rules. Uh Uh-uh. You love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your strength. And when you have that kind of love, you you will want to follow what the Lord has to say. It will be a desire, not a burden. That's what Jesus did. He taught them how to, to follow God's will completely. Let me give you one more thing while we're talking about this. I think it's critical. Jesus also trained his men and modeled for them how to suffer. Uh, you're going to find this uh, throughout the, the New Testament. There's a lot of talk about suffering, especially in the book of 2 Timothy. He modeled for them how to suffer. In fact, Peter 
probably maybe one of the harder-headed guys, but definitely the leader of the group. He got it. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he said this, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. And listen to what Peter wrote. Leaving for you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And remember what he said, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While people were, uh, while suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus did it. He modeled it. And Peter got it. And he wrote it. He says, you know what? We've been given example to follow in his steps. Friends, that's what we do. That's what a mentor does. He trains his people in the way that she should go. He gets involved in their life. They ask questions. They interchange. It is so good that if you've got a relationship with someone, you're saying, hey, what do you do when you're in this situation? Or how do you handle this? Or you know what? I'm really puzzled by this. Or I sense that I need to take another step in this area. A mentor's alongside to be able to help answer those questions. By the way, as we study the book of 2 Timothy, and I know a lot of you are reading it multiple times, look and see how all of these things are true of Paul as he's mentoring Timothy. But let me give you one final trait of how Jesus developed his men. That, um, that if, it's, if it's missing, you could have the first three, but I'm going to still have to probably put you in the category of being mostly ineffective. Because this is essential. It, it perhaps even has to supersede the first three. In fact, maybe it has to be the bedrock for the first three to be on. And that is this. Jesus loved his men. Do you want to have the mentor's pattern? The mentor's pattern is to invest in others like Jesus did. He gave them time, gave them teaching, gave them training, and he demonstrated to them tenderness. He loved his men. Uh, Remember in John chapter 13, an amazing scene. This is shortly before Jesus goes to the cross at this Passover, the feast of the Passover, the Last Supper. It says this, John chapter 13, verse 1. Listen carefully. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them. That could be translated with the uttermost. He loved them eternally. He loved his men. He was committed to them. He was committed to their development. He was committed to their growth. He was going to be patient with them. He was going to empower them. But he loved them to the very end. That is how Jesus invested in his people. And they saw it. In fact, you know, right after in John chapter 13, after he said that, do you remember what happened? That was the scene where at the, at the Last Supper, it was a wonderful meal. Remember he sent some of his guys on, you go get it ready. And they forgot one little detail. Does anybody remember what it was? It was, uh, there was, there was no one to wash the feet. See, you go into a room, and of course, the lowest slave kind of gets down on his knees, and he actually has a basin of water and towel, and, and he washes the feet of the guests. I mean, he's a lowly, lowly servant. You're not looking to make an eye contact or anything like that. You're not asking questions. You just get down on your knees, and you start washing those feet. And this is a really important gathering. I mean, these are the 12 disciples. They've been with Jesus now for almost three years. And we can't ask any one of these guys to do it. No one's going to volunteer, you know, volunteer to wash feet. I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Apparently, there was uh, no low slave to uh, put in to, to have them do that. So you know what? They just, 
We'll just kind of omit that detail. That would be glaring. That would be like you showing up at my house and, and you like had mud all over your feet and like just kind of waltzed in like, oh, we don't see this, you know. No, that's, it was so evident, so obvious. And so that was at the time. You remember during supper that Jesus gets up, takes off his outer cloak, gets one of those towels, and gets that basin of water, and he starts washing his guy's feet. And some of them had some revulsions of that, like Peter, like, oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You remember all that? And why did Jesus do that? He said, I am doing this to give you an example. You don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you're soon to understand this is what spiritual leadership looks like. And I'll tell you why I'm washing your feet. Not because I like the smell of things. Not because it is easy. Not because it's not humbling. It's all those things. I'll tell you why. Because I love you. I love you. And because I love you, I will do the hard thing. I will pour my heart out and my life out for you. I will teach you by example. I will give you my time and I will train you. That's what Jesus did. That's all. Jesus was giving them a living parable of his life. In fact, right after that, not only did he pour out water and wash their feet, not too many hours later, He's pouring out his blood on a cross where nails ripped through his arms and his, and his wrists and his feet. And he poured out his blood. Why? Because he loves his people. What a Savior. He loves his people. That is Jesus. That is what he did. That is how he developed his man. He gave him time, teaching, training, and tenderness. And do you remember... You remember uh, shortly before Christ ascended to heaven, after the resurrection, after he rose from the grave. Remember there was that little scene there in John 21 about the, the disciples and they were fishing and they hadn't caught any fish. Remember, and then he said, well, children, didn't catch anything. Why don't you throw it on the other side of the boat? Uh, and they do it and they catch all these fish. Remember, they come back. And then in John 21, beginning in verse 15, after Jesus had fed them food that Jesus had prepared, then you know what? He said this. Hey, Peter. Remember, do you love me? Remember, Peter. Peter's the guy that denied Jesus three times. He says, oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, you know that I love you. He said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to tend my lambs. And then Jesus, he asked him the second time, hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, did we just go over this? Yes. Oh, you know I love you. He said, I want you to shepherd my sheep. And then the third time, I mean, Peter was just probably coming apart at this time. Jesus, guys, right there, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then he said this, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to shepherd my people like I have shepherded you. I want you to adopt my style of spiritual leadership. I want it to be yours. You love me. I want you to invest in my people. You shepherd them. You care for them. When they're hurt, you try to help them. When they're gone astray, you bring them back. And you always are after health. You want healthy sheep that are going in the right direction. They're not getting eaten by wolves. They are healthy. They are strong. They are doing well. I want you to shepherd my sheep. And so when Jesus said, right before he ascends into heaven, go make disciples, what was going through their mind? I'll tell you what was going through their mind. Shepherd my people just like I have shepherded you. No mystery. You want Jesus' pattern? 
Jesus' pattern was to shepherd people. You want the mentor's pattern of how you develop people, whether it be your kids, your grandkids, your one-on-one relationship, your people in your fellowship family. You know what we do? We minister to people like Jesus did. We give them time, teaching, training, tenderness. And when you do, this baton the baton of faith in the living God, to walk by the power of His Spirit, to know Christ is passed on to the next generation, to the next person, to the next student, to the next business professional, to the next man on the street, to the next woman in the Bible study. The faith is continued just as Jesus intended it. Now, just a couple practical things on discipleship. There's really two different ways of doing it. There's the formal approach where you have a set kind of agenda of things that you want to cover, books, maybe a material study guide. I have benefited greatly by those. In fact, some of my guys, I have them going through books. Let me give you the second way. It's the informal approach. This is the approach where life is the school. And so whatever surfaces in their life, you talk about their marriage, talk about how things are going with their kids, maybe they've got business professionally, they've got questions, they're talking about finances, about time, about life, about ministry, whatever is surfacing, you work with them, but you also are guiding them so they end up like Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 kind of people. And so you ask good questions. Now, before you're like going, whoa, Grant, how would I even get started in a relationship like that? You've been talking about this for pretty much ever since you showed up here in Waco, Texas. And you've been really hitting it hard lately here as we're going through Second Timothy. All right, what would it honestly look like for me to do this? You know what? Go find, if you're a guy, another guy, maybe even a little younger you, invite him to lunch. Just start asking him some questions. Tell me about your life. What's going on? Tell me about your marriage. How are you doing spiritually? And now this is the big, this is, this is the big reason why you won't do it. Well, Grant, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? You know, for guys. So I would never want to come off like I didn't know everything, right? So I couldn't ever be in a... When someone asks you a question that you don't know, just tell them. You know what? That's a very good question. At this time, I don't know the answer, but let me get back to you. Let me think about that. Or if they present a scenario, you're not really sure how they should respond. You say, you know, at at this present time, it's not apparent to me which course of action you should take. But let me just lay out the three different options here. And let's talk about it. Let's pray and seek the Lord. That's what you do. You involve them yourself in their life by asking good questions. And if that first lunch goes well, you say, hey, how would you like to do this for three months? Maybe every other week. We'll just kind of get together and let's just talk. Maybe you can email me the questions or whatever. We can just kind of meet and we can talk. You can't afford to go to a restaurant. You can bring a bologna sandwich and a brown paper bag. I've done it both ways, and it works. Just find some time. Gals, just find some time to get your schedule to meet. But that's what you do. And if you were here today and you're saying, I would like to be mentored, I would like to be, have a guy like Paul investing in my life. Let me just give you three qualities that you want to have. You want to have a desire for growth. You want to be hungry. Search it out. You are going to be someone that's going to go after people, ask them questions. Hey, would I be willing to meet? It is much easier when someone goes after you versus, versus the alternative. If you're interested in discipleship, seek it out. I'll tell you what I did when I got out of college. I went to church, and I started scoping out, and I looked for the guy that I felt like loved his wife the best and had the best handle on ministry, and then I locked on on him and just started hey, talking with him. Eventually, I got into his circle. I got into his day planner, and we got together. That's what you do. But let me give you another quality of someone that just makes for a great disciple. 
You want to be teachable. Tell you what, you meet a lot of gifted people, but if you're going to be a great disciple, you have to heart that says, I'd like to understand this. Teach me. And learn to ask good questions. I am, I am amazed. You can be in conversations with people for two hours and they never ask you a question. What happened? They're so focused on themselves and like to hear themselves or something that they never ask good questions. Learn to be teachable. I'd like to know how to do this or do it even better. Let me give you the third quality of someone that's a great disciple. They've implemented what they are learning. It's not just like, this is good information. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can write it down, but there's implementation. Maybe not success initially, but implementation. So friends, the great exchange, it has to happen at Fellowship Bible Church. We as elders and leadership, we are absolutely committed to discipleship. We want this to be at the heartbeat of what is happening in all of our lives and all of our ministry. I just have one thing to say. Last call for the 4 by 400 Christians. Come to the track. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for our time together. It's time of worship. Because you are the great and awesome God who has revealed himself to humanity, to the very world that you've created. You have sent the Savior that we might experience relationship and life in you. And you have given us in your word not only how to live, but how to allow the legacy to continue. We're all going to leave behind something. You've told us to leave the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ imprinted on the lives of the people that mean most to us. So, Lord, let it be a reality in our lives, in our family, and in our church. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.